Hi, everybody. I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I spent time with Arcade Berg and Tor Frick. They're co-founders and creative directors of Neon Giant. Neon Giant just released The Ascent, a beautiful cyberpunk-themed action shooter RPG. Arcade and Tor shared what it was like to build an absolutely massive game with a small team. They explained how they balanced procedural construction with bespoke flourishes to create an insane level of detail. They also went over the importance of constraints and how, for them, using constraints was a key problem-solving tool. And having recently built Neon Giant from the ground up, they had some excellent advice for future game entrepreneurs. Please join us. Welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Arcade Tour, welcome. It is awesome to have you guys on the show. Thank you. It's Thanks. awesome to be here. Thanks for having us. And uh, and I got to congratulate you on The Ascent. It's been a lot of fun to play. It is just gorgeous. And I know you read that online all the time, but just as a, as a player, I can tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. It, it doesn't get old. You know, we're happy to hear it over <laughs> and over. <laughs> how, have you, uh, how have you guys felt about the overall response? I think it's been pretty overwhelming in many ways like it's uh the amount of uh players we had was just you know we didn't expect that and uh we also didn't ex- i mean we didn't expect people to be so passionate about it either uh yeah pe- which people is... took it very close to heart and I, I i was gonna say overwhelming but i didn't want to use the cliches i was just like hmm, what should i say but it, it is it is literally that it's like whoa the amount people care uh you know we're getting you know, uh, forums and, uh, you know, Reddit and Steam aside, we're also getting so much emails. So just people saying, hey, you know, I don't usually email developers, but I just want you to know. And then we get their personal story. And uh, we've seen a few of those before on, on games we worked on. And obviously, at, as an employee at Studios, you probably don't get to see all the, e- uh, all the emails that come in. But now we do. And it's just, wow, people really, really, really care. And that means a lot. What do you think strikes the chord with folks about the ascent and about uh, Neon Giant in general? I'd I'd like to think that it's uh, it has a lot of heart. Yeah, uh, I mean we uh, we we put a lot of ourselves into it. Like the team put a lot of themselves into it, and we we you know had have fun with creating like all these like little things that you hope that people will you know notice and and that that it will come through in the uh, end product but you just don't really know but i I think it uh, did manage to come through and that people can see that it's a you know a labor of love and that's something they bring up as well which is which is awesome it's like this is what you get when developers get to do what they want um because yeah there wasn't a lot of red tape um and they could say it's like yeah this this is someone's idea. This is someone's little quirky thing in a corner. And it can be anything from a location to, to a piece of text or anything. But yeah, it's, it's made by individuals, I think, more than people are used to seeing games of this, of this scope. And, you know, we, we probably underestimated the attention to detail that people would have. It's like, we don't even know if they'll know. Yeah, they noticed day one. Okay, never mind. Yeah, they noticed. <laughs> uh, there is not a lot of Easter eggs uh, that we haven't seen discovered yet, but uh, there's there's still a few, you know. That's really great to hear. Do you think that players today are hungry for that kind of attention to detail, and and this is sort of the the answer to that, the ascent? I, I think so. I think, and I mean, games overall are better than they ever been. Uh, yeah. The industry is taking leaps and bounds in what we can do, technology, markets, platforms, all that. That's fantastic. Uh, but we also do see some of you know the the samey samey happening especially with recipes and we say oh yeah i recognize this or yeah this is a game from them and you you do start to see trends and you know a lot of people definitely want to jump on trends but, whereas one yeah. reason we started neon giant was that we wanted to to try something different i also think that uh you know now with that it's so much easier for people to share uh their experiences and things they fi- uh, find so 
uh, now it's much for the players that do care because uh, there's just so many players out there. I mean, it's much much easier for people to share. You know, like oh, I found this thing, and then people are like oh, and I saw this thing. It's, it's just much easier for people to share like all the things that they yeah. you know uh, yeah. that they discover in the games. What are a few of the things in the game that you think reflect the distinct personalities of people on the team? All of it, but uh, I mean, everything from, you know, the world, uh, like um, like how the environments are built. Like, I mean, we have two environment artists that are, have built the entire world, essentially. So it's very, and we don't, we didn't have any concept art at all for the world. So it's very much, you know, like it's, it's there. Yeah, there are things like, for example, and and, and same thing with the uh, you know the the VFX. Like hmm. the vast majority of the VFX uh, and are made by one guy, and uh, you, you can tell, like, like I mean, at least I can tell that it's his <laughs> effects. You know, like I can tell the personality in the things that people have created. But I, I yeah, I think I didn't have a good answer, but I think you just solved it because I think uh, the the reason it's hard to say is because all of it, uh, because even the graffiti. Uh, you know, there's no piece of graffiti that someone asked for a graffiti to look a certain way and then someone else delivered. Someone made the graffiti, that is why it looks like that, and then we put it in the game. And the same thing with art. Like, everything was uh, most often a one-stop shop with who made it. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, the little story bits. Someone wrote it. It wasn't mm-hmm. a team of writers. It was, you know, e- either either our, our, one of our writers or... Or it was me, or it was Tor. It's like, yeah, no, I, I remember I wrote that bit. That's you know, gave someone a chuckle. Like maybe someone aligns with my way of of writing, and that's great. Then and then it was me. But then that part it wasn't. Uh, and I think that means that everything in the game has someone's personality in it because there's not a lot of mud in what was created. It's it's interesting that you mentioned the the dialogue and the effects. I mean, those are two things that really stood out to me in the game. And I'll I'll talk about it a little bit later, but I was just hit hit with a sledgehammer by your, by your effects in the game. I mean, they're just gorgeous and they're so over the top. And, uh, and and the fact that one person built them all, uh, you can, first of all, you can see the consistency and, and his joy in building them. And then the dialogue, same thing. I mean, the personalities for the characters all feel very distinct. And I guess it sounds like, that's the result of having a lot of people who have just kind of lent their own voices to these characters. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so with with the the dialogues is a good example in the way that it's very easy for someone to write a line, and then we put it in. And since we have you know uh, just people in the world talking to each other, it doesn't matter really who wrote it because someone in this world will talk like that. You know, we don't have this this standardized way of how people talk. It's all kinds of people. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also uh, even when you know we, I mean, we've worked with uh, you know a lot of contractors and outsourcing, uh, you know, but but even then we're trying to work with uh, you know individuals rather than studios. So uh, if we're gonna outsource something, we're trying to have the same approach. So we we work with you know a few talented people and we let them you know we let them flex their creativity a little bit because it makes our job easier because we don't have to manage so much, but it also, uh, it, it, it just, it just brings a little bit of, a little bit extra. And among them, uh, a lot of those people are people we worked with before in some, some other place. So we know, you know, what kind of person they are more than just their work that helps. You know, I, I want, I had to ask, uh, another thing that blew me away about the game was the sound. And watching your credits, you have uh, the person's name is unique. And I'm trying to remember what it was, but was this a person on your team or somebody you work with? Are you thinking about the music or the sound effects? I think there was one line in the credits that referenced sound. So the majority of sound is handled by Sweet Justice. Uh, Sweet Justice, Uh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, um, which is founded by Chris Wheatman and Samuel Justice, two guys. Uh, So that's that's a sound house that actually reached out to us very early on. And uh, it was after we won an Unreal uh, Unreal Dev Grant, which okay. you know is uh, Epic's way of saying, these are cool kids. <laughs> and uh, they reached out to us and said, hey, you know, we'd be interested. Do you, wanna, do you wanna show what you're working on? And we honestly felt like, there's no way we can work with them. They're the best. Uh, but let's, let's talk. 
and uh, they just went, this is awesome. We would love to do something together. And we just figured out a way to work together. So they've been with us for the majority of the project. And they, they like you say, they make the most kick-ass productions when it comes to sound. And we are nothing but humble and impressed with what they've delivered. And we've had so much fun working together. But I think you can tell that they've been with you since the beginning of the project. I mean, it, it feels, the sound feels really, really well integrated. And just as somebody who really appreciates weapon sounds and good weapon sounds, man, they're, they're great throughout. Yeah, they always over-delivered because we were always pretty uh, <laughs> reasonable with our requests, right? And they go, yeah, but we could. It's like, we're not going to stop you. You know, if you look at the games they worked on, like with, for example, Gun Sounds, like, yeah, these are, these are titles I can guarantee the majority of your listeners have played. Uh, so like, sure, if you can do that, let's do that. We're not going to stop anyone from doing their best. That's great. Uh, well, I, I could gush all day about the game, but I, I want to talk a little bit about you, the start, your starts, mm -hmm. and just ask, how did you both get your start in games? Tor, do you want to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I go, I mean, I started modding when I was like a kid, basically, uh, like way, way back. And because uh, I, I only had a Mac, so I didn't have many games, so I just modded them instead. And uh, and then I was basically doing you know low key modding for like many many years until I realized that oh wait you can actually you know do this uh, for a living and you can actually go to like university and study this kind of stuff. Um, and, th and then I went to uh, of course the first thing I did was you know to apply for university and and do that just that and um, that's actually where I met Arcade. We went to university together. Now you're spoiling my history. I know, but that's the downside of you letting me go first because. We share so much common history, so I'm just gonna steal all of it now. Yeah. Uh, so no, we um, uh, we go way back, uh, and uh, so I went to university and in a small place nowhere in Sweden called Skövde, where you have absolutely nothing to do except, uh, well, play video games and try to make video games. So. And um, and then uh, after like you know halfway through that, I uh, I went into AAA, uh, where where I stayed for some time. Uh, you can then jump on your part because okay. otherwise I'm going to uh, steal Okay, it. so I'll, I'll go back to my childhood as well then. Uh, I, I, uh, I always had an interest, of course. I uh, grew up with games. My big brother had a C64. So, I, you know, there was always video games around me. Today he doesn't care, but I'm glad he did when he was a kid. Um, and I started making games when I bought Click and Play from the local bookstore, uh, which was this... Uh, I mean, at the time, pretty cool tool. Uh, today, people would probably call it primitive, but you could make interactive screens with it. Uh, and I, I jumped between every imaginable game-making tool set back then. It was Click and Play, it was RPG Maker, it was uh, Game Maker before they were purchased by Yo-Yo, uh, everything, and tried Unreal and stuff. And um, I jumped from <laughs> Click and Play to... Unreal. But... Yeah, yeah, but I, I tried all of them. And to this day, I've probably used most of the engines at least a bit because I'm very curious in that field. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much a designer and not like a low engine engineer and things. So I need the tools to be ready for me to use. Um, and um, yeah, uh, one day uh, my mom told me, you know, it's time to pick school because I, I knew I was going to go to uni, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, well, fine, I Google game dev. And I applied for the first school, first hit. And it was in this uh, huge city, which was more than 10 times bigger than my hometown called Havde. Uh, <laughs> so for me, it was a big upgrade coming to that ginormous city of 50,000 people. That's 25,000. Okay, it felt like 50. Um <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I went the design program while uh, uh, Tor went art, and uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get a job during my last semester. So I, I graduated with my bachelor on a Friday, started working uh, at Grin, which later went defunct, but uh, at Grin on the following Monday, and since then I just stuck in the industry uh, and have been fortunate in being able to work on on good games that people know. And, and throughout our careers, we've kind of like we've crossed paths several times. We, I, I started working at Massive, for example. Uh, I guess that made the division. Uh, but we we've crossed paths. We both went to People Can Fly, yeah. uh, worked on Bulletstorm, for example, in Poland. Yeah, uh, hmm. and then we split paths for a while before working together again at Machine Games. Mm -hmm. 
um, uh, before I left. And uh, then a few years later, we founded uh, Neon Giant together. But we both had a similar interest and, and uh, type of games that we like to make because we really like to make, I mean, action games, you know, very gameplay focused games, but we also really like to make intricate worlds, you know, lots of world storytelling, lots of world building. And world interaction. Yeah, lots of interaction. Um, so so we kind of always, you know, gravitated towards the same kind of studios. And uh, that's also the kind of stuff that we we uh, want to make with Neon Giant, really. That's great. Well, that thank you for sharing all that. And I, you know, the next question I have that's related is, what was the decision like for you both to leave these larger companies and start your own? Was it difficult? Yes, difficult in the sense that it's scary. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's all because we 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 are both you know tinkerers. We we like to build things. We like to actually create things. But and we like to complain <laughs> because that, that that was that was part of it. Because the, the, it was scary, but we were very clear on what we wanted to do. So yeah. it was it was not okay. Let's start a business together. Okay, what should we do? Broomsticks? No, let's make video games. We knew exactly what we wanted to solve. Yeah. which was how we saw AAA making games. Yeah. And it, it's also like from a, it started very, very much with our own personal, uh, like, like the feeling uh, towards AAA because we want to make high quality stuff. We want to play with the latest tools and, you know, you know, very like, we like playing with the latest tech and stuff like that. And uh, so we don't want to make simple games or, you know, pixel art games or anything. We want to do, you know, the, the full AAA experience in, in that sense but we we also like to have a lot of input but we also like to build the things ourselves and 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 that equation just doesn't work with AAA because if you are good enough at something you tend to be either become a specialist or you know a director and then you don't get to touch any of the cool stuff and that was like well, for me you know it's you know directing something and you come up with all these cool ideas and then you're like wait i don't get to do any of this <laughs> i just i just gave all the fun away to other people and uh and that's what we um wanted to you know to try to solve with neon giant is to have a a studio where where people who wants to create you know this high end like to be on the high end in their field but still work in a smaller team yeah, and one of the reasons, if if people start googling Neon Giant, um, they'll probably see that our message is often that we're a team of senior developers, and that's that's not really to to brag and say, oh, we've been doing this for so long, uh, we, we're the best at making video games, uh, but it comes from the fact that everyone loves making video games when they just start out. Everything is shiny. But a lot of people, unfortunately, lose that passion over time, and that's fair. Uh, it's not for everyone or, you know, you have a bad story. But if you if you meet us 10 years into your career and you're still passionate about wanting to create, about wanting to be cutting edge, about wanting learning to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Learning, growing, all that. It's like, okay, the love is real. That's the kind of person we want to work with. So it's not saying that um, a more junior or mid-level developer wouldn't be as good a developer. We just don't know if it's going to last well, how was well, that's a great topic. How do you keep the passion alive years after having gotten into the games industry and realizing that well, it's not a utopia. It's a lot of hard yeah. work, and and things don't always turn out the way you think. How do you keep that alive? I think that uh, of course it's very individual, you know, from person to person. But you know, for example, for me, it's that uh, to just keep learning and discovering new things. That's a big part of why what I love about making games is that. You know, if if you're just you know a 3D modeler and just modeling slightly better models all the time, that that's not you know terribly exciting. I think because it's not going to change very much. But uh, the the industry is always changing. The tools are changing. You know how how we build things. You know what we're building. And for me, a big part of that you know keeping the excitement fresh is that you're always you know always trying to solve new problems. You're always trying to push beyond what you've done previously and. Uh, uh, and you know, if you have that appetite, and you work somewhere where you're allowed to, uh, uh, you know, to, I don't know, flex that creativity, and you know, and be curious and learn new things, I think, then it's uh, a lot easier to you know uh, 
I think that's also passion. why why a lot of the people that have been in the industry for a long time have uh, you know changed job many times. Sometimes it's because you know the, the place goes under or there are significant changes. Uh, but for a lot of people, it's just, well, I needed a change. It could be a change of scenery, but it could also be a change of games. Um, like with me, for example, with uh, with machine games, uh, great studio, great games. But after five Wolfstein titles, I've made enough Wolfstein titles, right? Um, and uh, it can be anything. I mean, there are studios, and Insomniac is a good example, right? That have had staff for nearly thirty years now. Uh, so obviously, you're doing something that lets people feel that you know um, every year brings something new, and that's also what I hope that we are now doing with with Neon Giant, and we'll see. We're uh, three and a half years in, so you know, let's do a follow up in seven years and see where we are. <laughs> Uh, but it is really that a part of the the pitch, if you will, is to keep things fresh. Uh, we need to keep challenge ourselves. We're not just going to fall into a rut of this is now what we're going to be doing forever and this is how we're going to be doing it. And something that is very hard for a AAA studio. And l- let me just be clear. I love AAA games and I love working with AAA games. I think they're fantastic. Uh, but if you have 500 people, it's very hard, hard to course adjust. Uh, we can quickly, we can jump on the latest tech over a weekend, um, or I should say during a weekday, of course. Um, but uh, we can do that because we're small. And that's part of the charm, I think, to like, okay, this seems exciting. You know, um, we had our animator sit yesterday just with some new tech, testing things out. It's like he bought a pair of uh, of uh, mocap gloves. It's like, oh, look at this, 30 minutes in, and now I have this. Like, well, that's really cool. You know, that's that's fun. You can't easily do that if you're just, and I'm doing air quotes here for listeners, uh, just an <laughs> animator at a large studio. It sounds like you also give a lot of, uh, you empower your team members to yeah. just make their own creative decisions and, and, and not just creative decisions, but it sounds like in the case of the gloves, maybe a decision that could affect an entire production. You're just saying, go for it, right? Absolutely, and uh, and I think also not just that, but uh, we we've tried, you know, when when we hired people in the well, so far, like I can see in the past, we're like you say, three and a half years in, but almost everyone that has started at the studio brings something new to the studio, and um, and we have we we can also change and adapt what we make based on what people can do and what people want to do. So if someone is really really good at something. It's the best for the studio. Yeah, let them do yeah, it. Let, yeah, just let them do it. So uh, we have a lot of things in the Ascent that we, we said from the very beginning, we're definitely not doing this because there's no way we can do this. And then someone started and they're like, oh, actually, this is easy. We just need to do this and this. And we're like, okay, cool, let's do it. Uh, so we we threw a lot of plans out the window because we realized like, oh, actually, that's, that's cool. Let's, let's do that. And uh, it's also because, I mean... Uh, when when we hire someone who's not doing the same job as us, which you know should be everyone, um, they will most likely be better at what they're doing than what we are. So, at what they're doing, yeah, exactly. So, trust their judgment. Yeah, exactly. If that, that's yeah, exactly. They we don't need to tell them how to do their, do their jobs because we'll probably be wrong. Well, what happens though in a situation where? You have somebody who's gone off and, and, and trying something cool. It doesn't work, and but they still want to pursue it, and you disagree. What's your what's your resol- your process for resolving conflicts? In with don't, that? Don't, don't do it. Uh, no, but um, it it needs to be within the context of what we're trying to achieve, right? Um, uh, so with the ascent, for example, well, we're making this game, and what you want to do uh, sounds like it's going to fit within what the game wants to be. So you know, let's try it. And then again, since we're so small, we can be very fast with seeing where it's heading. So it doesn't need to come to a discussion three months in. It's like, but I, I've invested so much time. It's like, no, it's probably going to be three days in. And you know, this is probably not going to work. Is it's like, no, yeah, let's do something else. Yeah. So we we haven't had to have that tough. Sorry, man, we're pulling the plug uh, because we don't have that division. You know, doing that. Uh, R&D on this thing for a very long time uh, so we can keep our eyes and fingers involved uh, throughout so I think that's a good thing as well uh, but at the end of the day you know we are trying to make good games and we're trying to to run a business in the sense that everything has a cost so that always needs to be in the background because you know let's not be silly it's not working 
but we do want to encourage encourage all kinds of experimentation and testing if if we believe that the end result will benefit everyone. And a lot of the and a lot of what we have in the game is the result of experimentation. Oh, well. absolutely. Most things go through because again, they they thought they knew how to do it and they were right. Well, Arcade, you mentioned you mentioned running the business, and I want to go back to the beginning again and ask: How did you both balance the requirements of starting a studio with actually making a game? <laughs> we poorly we didn't. Yeah, very poorly. We, we didn't. How uh, hard can it be? Yeah, very... turns out it's pretty hard. <laughs> so yeah, yeah we um, were luckily we were a bit naive. <laughs> well, what are some of the yeah. things that you that you discovered that were a complete surprise for you when starting Neon Giant? Uh, like, well, hey, it turns out paperwork is a real thing. <laughs> um, no, but it's, uh, it, I think, uh, in, in general, like something we learned, like almost everything, every decision we made, we were like, okay, someone should help us do this. We're like, we should have done that from the very beginning because yeah, it's like, you know, it's, uh, of course it's easier now because, you know, we have, you know, uh, we're not the same startup we was like we were when we started, but like, uh. Uh, we we are not uh, you know experienced at you know doing all the paperwork setting all that stuff up so so when we're doing that we're obviously not the best at that so. we, we we learn by doing but we we made sure to get people involved that knows how this works so for example yeah. just something as simple as investments um, you know money is easy and a lot of people go like what but it it kind of is. Um, and then you have the the expression, easy, yeah. yeah. But then you have the the expression smart money, right? And it's really a thing. It's like we only took on people that well, can you also help us with this? It's like yeah, no, we have an HR department, we have legal, we have this and this, and you know we we already operate in several boards for other video game companies. Like okay, good, this is useful for us. Would you be willing to do that for us? It's like yes, okay, great. So we made sure to to always bring in. Uh, just like we do with the studio, whenever we bring someone in, we bring in a, a new set of skills. Uh, because if we say that we want to work with some of the best talent in the world for game dev, then we also want to work with the best talent for the business side of things. So we have a very strong team there now as well. But to, to Tor's point, every decision we've made we should probably have made earlier you know, we yeah. should probably have changed office earlier Insights, yeah. we should have uh, hired someone to help us with the office stuff earlier we should have hired a cleaning company earlier <laughs> we should have installed our own servers earlier yeah. like everything is like this helped i wish we had this earlier it's like yeah turns yeah. out turns out it's not time efficient for us to run and buy coffee yeah something as silly as that yeah uh, well, that's that's great i mean if you you mentioned that you relied on people outside of, of the company occasionally. It sounds like a really great call for when it comes to HR and finance and legal. Yeah. Um, do you remember any of the specific advice you got from some of those folks along the way? Well, a lot of it was just, this is how you have to run a company. You have to do this. There is a yearly report. Apparently, you have to do it every year. Well, shit. <laughs> yeah, okay, to be fair, we knew that part. But yeah, uh, no, but it's, uh, I think, like one of the... Uh, um uh, some of the advice we got was just you know to to actually you know streamline things as much as possible and let us focus on you know our job as much, much as possible you know which is what we want to do it's just we didn't fully realize how much uh of that stuff that just keeps on you know coming in because you know it, you know we, when we started out we were, we were very very small and you know something as simple as you know replying to uh, all the job applications that we got and all that stuff is just well, there's a lot of this because we're like, oh, we're not going to be this company that doesn't reply to emails. And then we're like, oh, wait, I understand why people don't reply to emails now. <laughs> it is great to hear you say that because I, I, I agree. I, I really appreciate you you sharing the, the challenge. Um, I think a lot of folks who join companies don't realize how much has to go on behind the scenes just to support the, the culture and the production. Uh, it, it definitely takes, I mean, to use a cliche, it takes a village. And that village is often sort of not even visible. Um, but you know, th speaking of culture, I also wanted to talk a little bit about that. When, when you both decided to start neon giant, did you talk about the kind of culture you wanted to create at the company? I think we were a bit naive there as well. Yeah. Uh, but, but yes, we did, of course. Yeah. But, uh, we, I mean, the same thing there, like we were a bit naive and underestimating, you know, the uh, amount of work it takes, um, 
you know, to, to do that. But also the fact that, you know, when we're a small studio like this, uh, since we are so small and, you know, we're staying pretty small, you know, the people are the culture. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. we, we can't dictate culture because we can't, um, because it depends so much on who we hire. The only way we can dictate culture is, you know, by hiring the right people. I think that's actually one of the best advices we got probably again a bit too late, which is people eat culture for breakfast. It's like, it doesn't matter what you decide. And I, that, that was a quote that uh, I, I really liked. Um, I think one of the misconceptions we had with what the culture wanted to make was like, oh, you know that, that indie story we keep seeing online with, everyone being friendly and happy and doing everything together. That seems great. Let's do that. Let's make sure that, you know, we, we have happy people making a game together. And we do have happy people, but we do have happy people with 10, 15, 20 plus years of experience. And with that comes certain expectations on the workplace. And those expectations on how the workplace operates with what it provides doesn't really align with you know, people living together in a house making a game because <laughs> everyone has their own family. And it's like, so that quickly we realized like, oh no, actually we, we're too old and uh, everyone here is, is, is way too grown up uh, for that, you know, that video you've seen online to actually work. So we, we, we have happy staff, but it's not the, the super cute indie story that you keep seeing because everyone here, you leave work and you go home to your family. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. That's that's a great distinction, and I, I really like how you. Uh, it's sort of the mature approach to culture. Um, were, speaking of which, was there anything uh, you didn't want to repeat that you had seen in your previous companies that you were adamant about? Like, we're not going to do this. I, I, I experienced this at another company. Yeah, I would yeah. say one is. Uh, hire out of a necessity right now for a project yeah. and then we stuck with those people and then you have a new project where they're not needed yeah yeah something like that like we we're trying to be very uh flexible in uh so that we don't have to do that but also we only try to hire people that we that are always needed you know if we need more muscle we can outsource it uh we don't we don't we don't hire for like you know having more muscle and we've seen that before where like, like our kids said, like someone gets hired, you know, uh, as a contractor because they're a contractor, and then they get that permanent position. And then, like, wait, now we have so many of these guys, and then instead you have like half a year where you know people are not really um, have much to do. And that's also the thing that we, depending on your personality as well and who you are, some people want to keep busy and they want to have you know meaning with what they're working on. Like, because sometimes you know you just end up putting throwaway work for people. They're like, oh yeah, they can work on these things, but it doesn't really matter to have that kind of work. And, and that also, you know, it's, uh, if, if you're the kind of, um, you know, person that wants to, you know, push forward and actually create something and make sure it, making sure it's actually valuable, it's, that, that's a real motivation killer uh, to just sit and like kind of twiddle your thumbs. Absolutely. It sounds like you guys were never have never been at a loss though for things to do. I mean, if it's a <laughs> a, a small team making a giant game, I mean, I, I can't imagine every anybody's ever twiddling their thumbs. So I, I I actually did want to jump with that in mind to game construction and talk a little bit about how it is how you guys do things. And this is sort of a technical question, but how with the, with the the team that you have, how do you structure production? How do you think about it from start to finish? We we let it we, we didn't yeah. no no we, we we let it grow again since since we started with just a handful of people um, we needed to start off with something that was extremely scalable in every sense of the word so not only gameplay mechanics but also we need the narrative wrapping that we could expand on because we needed to allow the game to take in anything a new employee could bring uh, but we also needed to finish be able to finish the game without Mr. Unknown stepping into the ring, right? Um, so that's part of why we, for example, set it in Cyberpunk. Now, obviously, we love that. Tor has built a gazillion things for it already. Uh, it's it's close to us, uh, but it also lets you do anything gameplay and still make it uh, have yeah. uh, have it make sense in the in the story. Again, something we like with building worlds. Yeah, I think that in general, it's a, it was a very pragmatic approach because... 
we just started out. We didn't know what the team would be like. We didn't know what the budget would be like. So we had to plan everything to, you know, fit unknown puzzle pieces in in, in there. And uh, you know, as the team grew, we we could, uh, you know, things of course uh, solidified. But it was a it was a very unusual production in that we we started from nothing and uh, we uh, you know it's not like we. We didn't have like you know super strong financial backing or anything, so we couldn't say like for sure this is gonna take you know three four years. We we started out being okay. We're gonna do something and we're gonna make sure it ships, and then we'll mm-hmm. see what that thing is. So it was very different from uh, like a traditional project. I you always hear about uh, the the concept of finding the sun, but I can honestly say that this is the first project I worked on where we did that out of necessity. But we needed to start building stuff, and we kept building stuff, and we never stopped building stuff. And in parallel, okay, we also need to make a game, and how how do we get it to play the best, the most fun? And uh, I think we got there, and I mean, yeah. as proven, we got there. Um, but it, like, I could almost draw a timeline on where certain features that today look obvious came in, uh, you know, because none of it was there day one. Uh, we we just started with. A, a skeleton what is an example of a moment where you found the fun in the game so the cover mechanics for example uh you know some some people like well you know cover mechanics is nothing new it's like yeah but you've never seen it with a game with this perspective or these controls and that's us bringing it like i worked on on uh, gears of war as well like i've done cover shooters before yeah. so it's not new for me either but i i knew exactly what i wanted to bring from that and uh um it it grew over time that this is the most fun and sexy way to play the game. Yeah, and then it really like, but it it was also kind of like it was there. But I, I think in combat in general, uh, we had the mechanics in there, but it wasn't until we had like a, a sit down and we actually just took a combat scenario and we tweaked the AI and we tweaked the distances and that were like, oh, actually, this this yeah. is what we should have in the entire game, basically. And that was just like. We had all the puzzle pieces, but it wasn't really fitting together. And then we just sat down and we just, just, you know, sat in front of the computer and then we just tweaked, tweaked it until it looked and felt good. And it's, it's funny because uh, every every piece of um, like marketing content we we released, we used uh, covers because it just looks sexy, sexy. You're sitting behind something, you lift your gun, you're going boom, boom, boom. Uh, and then we're like, but why aren't we actually playing it like that? Hmm. Why why do we only play it like that to make it look good? We should make the game encourage you to play it just like that. So we started putting in those, but yes, this is way more fun. That's great. Because there was a long time you could just play it as as um you know in an open field as a as a twin stick shooter, if you will. And we wanted to no, let's let's go further to the sexy stuff. We're at the you know that's a such a core mechanic for for any shooter, right? If you decide to go that direction, were there any people on the team who were saying, well, I really don't think it's going to work and sort of holding back? Or, or was everybody sort of invested in figuring it out? No, no, no one didn't think it was going to work. Well, it wasn't going to work, but some people like, oh, that's a lot of work. Mm. Like, yes, it is. But do we think it's worth it? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, it also, it was a big change, but because, you know, we had built like a huge part of the world and then we're like, okay, now we're just going to insert covers everywhere. We have to go over the entire world and make it play with this. So we had to, you know, uh, retrofit a lot of things. Uh, That's a tough decision. You know, that, that, what a great example, because I know we run into those sort of decisions all the time where you discover something or you make a decision about game mechanics that will have an effect across the entire game. Mm-hmm. And it does create a lot of rework and you have to establish buy-in, right, for the whole team. Yeah. So they so that the work is justified and people don't feel like, um, I told you so, or yeah, you're wrong. So is is that something that's also part of your process, establishing that buy-in so that people are cool with, as you said, uh, toward going back and placing cover across the entire game? Well, the well, the main uh, you know downside with placing the covers, like we, we use these beautiful purple boxes for covers uh, so that there will be no uh, confusion over it was temporary or not, uh, which of course, you know, uh, upset the artist because you know like you know no it's you know it wasn't so, pretty for a while it wasn't pretty for a while but a good thing about adding lots of covers is that then you can add lots of more details mm-hmm. also <laughs> also if it's a blinking pink block you can be damn sure it's going to get replaced before you ship <laughs> uh, but 
but yeah, it it definitely was that was a a, a big piece of work, definitely, and uh, uh, it would have been very hard to do and to do it as well as uh, the team did if it wasn't because, um, well, partially because they're awesome, but uh, also just. Uh, uh, there was there was ways to to make the game uh like better in every way so not just gameplay it actually th- this was also gameplay that didn't make the visuals worse it was the opposite so yeah. thankfully we could we could you know do both and and that that would have probably been harder if the game was bigger and the team was bigger because then this would get more passed down the chain and we'd have to you know have rules for it uh now it was a little bit more free form so that definitely helped but i mean we don't have an official process of how to establish buy-in right uh but we always try to be as communicative as we can we're saying this is what we're thinking now uh what do you think or what does you know to the entire team sometimes like what do you guys think this is where we're heading now to at least get a sense of maybe maybe it was just us maybe we're just seeing things from a different angle um so so you know we we do try to be as communicative as we can um this process is uh like hard when it's a handful of people it's like well there's basically like i mean there's like eight different processes because depending on who you talk to because they're all individuals so it's <laughs> no i get it i get it um but it is cool that you guys do that go through that process of sounds like getting everybody's input and making sure it's the right thing to do uh, and tori you mentioned that an offshoot of of adding the cover was the ability to add more detail. And I know that um, a lot of folks have talked about, and I've seen firsthand the insane amount of detail that you have in the game. I mean, it really is impressive. And I just wanted to talk about how you did that. How did you pull that off? (laughs) Yeah, a number of things. Um, So, I mean, the first thing we did was that we, uh, I mean, we decided to make a open world game set in a city, which, you know, is not the easiest thing to do uh, and was not the uh, easy route to make. It would be a lot easier to make a forest. Um, but from the very beginning, like uh, I knew that we needed to be very, uh, very quick with the, our content creation. So, uh, and at the same time, we were, we were a lot more humble uh, in the beginning. Like we, we didn't set out. To, <laughs> what like, happened? <laughs> yeah. No, we, we didn't make, set out, you know, like, oh, we're going to make, you know, like, you know, the best looking game in the genre like you know we didn't we didn't set our sights on that uh what what happened was that i knew that uh like in the beginning it was only me creating art so i needed to have a pipeline that allowed me to create uh art without doing any concept art and i need to be very very fast uh so i developed a, a custom pipeline uh, for that that was like specifically for the ascent and uh, then uh, when uh we we brought on like uh, one guy uh, who uses Houdini a lot, and then we, you know, kept going into making more, uh, you know, more tools. So we're very very tools focused, and you know, creating a lot of cool tools, like for creating you know, like the cables, and even you know, like tools for you know, uh, placing the the architecture, uh, like the because we have a lot of you know walkways and stuff like that. So we have a lot of tools for this, and then the other part of it was this that. We needed to find, uh, you know, like visual recipes that allowed us to create things that were very, very detailed, but without having to have this, you know, back and forth uh, when it comes to uh, designing things. Because quite often, like, uh, you have this specific scene you want to make in a AAA game, for example. And what takes time is, you know, you need to do the concept art, you need to do the level design, and you need to make all the custom content for it. And, And it's a lot of work involved in just making uh that specific scene and we tried to um once again like you know just design something that allowed us to be very very flexible with how we built it so we have almost no custom content anywhere in the entire game like characters environments like there's almost not a single custom mesh anywhere it's all assembled from like existing stuff so i mean we have we have something like i don't even know 10,000 models that we created for the game or something uh, across, you know, less than a handful of people. Um, but it, uh, it it was all developed with like very clear limitations in mind. We're like, this is how far we go and no further because if you do that, you can just focus on outputting things and we needed to be very 
uh, like speed focused because uh, we thought that we needed to make a very very big game for this type of game. Uh, but as the as the game changed when we were building it, we realized it didn't need to be as big as we thought in terms of you know, square meters. So you guys talk about Houdini and proceduralism and how you work within constraints to create the what feels like infinite variety. Uh, I'd love to know how Houdini, which I think is a fantastic tool, was you know, more specifically used for, for the game. We, we used it in a number of ways. Uh, one of the more you know, obvious ones is the, the, the destruction, which was all... Uh, uh, made using Houdini. Uh, we have a lot of simulated destruction, a lot of destructible elements. So that was all Houdini. But we also used it for like, uh, I mean, a little bit of everywhere. We, we, uh, I, I don't think you can, you know, go, you know, too far. Like p- people often see this, you know, completely procedural, like, oh, you drag out the box and you have a building and, and, you know, and people are like, oh, you can make a game in like, you know, you know 10 minutes with this. Like, well, it's, as long as no one wants to change anything ever, which you know <laughs> tends to happen, um, but uh, we definitely used a, a lot of um, like smaller tools. Like we had, uh, you know, like uh, for placing things like the the a lot of the buildings and the walls and the uh, the walkways and, and things like that, uh, which was you know a pretty advanced tool. And also for like all the pipes that you see in uh, in the game, that is completely made. Uh, via Houdini so it's mind-blowing yeah so like no modeling was involved on those we just uh you know had the profiles like which type of pipes and then it generated like a modular pipe set and then we had another Houdini tool for just drawing splines in the world and then we just make you know place modular uh pipes for example I really hope I really hope we can do um uh, GDC or some such of of some of this thing and just show uh, because this is something that we're asked a lot and yeah. it's, it's really interesting but it's it's not really <laughs> no, no offense to this but this is not the forum to go into the details of how everything yeah. worked but it was it was for me who who understands almost nothing uh, it was it was really magic so we have a lot of those tools you know like cables pipes uh, walls destruction but also you know uh, VFX related things and uh, even the animated, um, we have some like animated shaders in the game, which are like uh, made in Houdini and then you know converted into textures and then animation. So there's there's a lot of like there there's a lot of tech art mm-hmm. everywhere in the game. Basically, it's a, I mean we um, this is actually though a good place because you asked earlier is like well, what you know what happens if we if we don't go ahead with something. And one thing that we that we invested in early on that we didn't use very much, we used some, but it was uh, something that could generate entire rooms and environments with with art in it. Um, and uh, you know, you can people think they love random, uh, but people only like random to a certain point, and then you want to go in and you want to alter it. True random is never your friend in video games, right? Um, and most often when people think they're playing a game, oh, and it's all random. It's like, well, it's random with a nudge. It's, it's, uh, it's not so random. It's, uh, it's just, you don't know what's going to happen. That's, yeah. uh, that's all the random there is. Yeah. So this was also a learning experience for us. Yeah, just like where, where to draw the line between um, where do we, you know, I mean, it's always hard to draw the line. Where, like where do you do handcrafted content and where do you rely on uh, uh procedural or you know automated systems it's always it's always so tempting to go let's go the full distance it's going to be completely automatic and you're like well actually if you have like if you have 85 percent, that's probably going to be good enough because to solve those 15 percent is going to be a lot harder than to just do the additional 15 percent yourself it's and it's easy to get you know uh blinded by this idea of like oh yeah it's going to be the perfect tool it's going to handle all the edge cases and you're like no there's going to be so many edge cases <laughs> It sounds like you, though, I mean, that balance of, of, of random and bespoke, right, uh, allowed you to, to do something that most people wouldn't be able to do with a small team. I mean, yeah. again, the, your team size and the output just, you know, in, in a traditional sense, they just don't match. Like you go, yeah. how, how could a small team do this? And relying on, it's great to hear you talk about proceduralism in a more sort of thorough fashion so that people understand that it is not, proceduralism isn't the answer necessarily, but it's a big boost, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a big help. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the, 
it's a combination of tools like which we, we, we tried to I mean I think one of the biggest uh, things you can do to make some to be efficient is to put limitations because hmm, yeah. as soon as you're like in, in many you know uh, video many games I've worked on many engines it's like we have one way to create our content this is the only way and then what you do is like you try to you know use tricks to get more out of that way of making content right you like this is the only way we can build levels like okay but what if we take you know it's like the old you know duke nukem levels where you're like well you can't make water but they're like well what if you jump into the water you're actually teleported to another level it's like i mean yeah like you know you end up with those kind of solutions where people are just like okay we can't do this technically but we're going to do it a different way as soon as you have infinite amounts like well you can solve this in any number of ways and then you get stuck on thinking on well which one is the best way really but if you're if you only have one way of doing it you're just gonna do it yeah also with procedural uh there's a huge difference and a, a very important decision to make uh do you want offline procedural content generation you know stuff that you do on your computer you save it because you like it and you put it in the game or do you want runtime live procedural generation because then it will be generated for the player on demand and you have no control after whatever just happened. So, you know, all of ours is, is offline. We, mm-hmm. we, we generate, we review, we modify uh, if, if needed because um, it's, a, it's a whole different sport to do it, uh, it real time. Um, but you no, know, Houdini definitely gave us a lot of uh uh like edge cutting edge uh stuff like i i remember we we were greatly um flattered when people said from our first trailers like finally next gen destruction right here right now it's like yes but it looks exactly the same on xbox one (laughs) but it just looked good definitely i mean it's it's awesome that all of those tools i guess exist to, to, to realize the vision. I mean, I, again, you, you all mentioned also Unreal and how that was such yeah. a, you know, you used Unreal. And, and I've read interviews where you guys talk in depth about the features like uh, Blueprints and Niagara and, and how you used all those, which is awesome. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I think too, you're right. There's, a, there's so much great material that you, it would make an awesome GDC or Dice Talk um, here that you guys can share. So I, I actually want to jump more to theming of the game, okay. if you guys don't mind. Uh, Cyberpunk, for me, the, the theme is something that's near and dear to my heart because I'll just share a personal anecdote. When I was in college, uh, I in the 80s, I wrote my senior thesis on the rise and fall of Cyberpunk, and I got to interview William Gibson, who wrote, oh. as you guys probably know, Neuromancer. Yeah, yeah. He, he was willing to get on the phone with me um, as some like random college student and, and talk about cyberpunk and his influence and since then i i felt like cyberpunk has really never had its day like it kind of it kind of drifted into sort of a bunch of different areas and seeing yeah. you know games today your game and and obviously people talk about the other cyberpunk game uh bringing it back in a way that's so cool is, is fantastic so what i love and again i'm on sort of a rant a positive rant here what i love about <laughs> your approach is that it's you, you're creating sort of a fun, sometimes over the top, beautiful experience that isn't nihilistic, right? That isn't yeah. sort of the grim, dark, uh, sort of brooding approach to, to cyberpunk that others have. Um, did you do that consciously from the beginning, or did that evolve? Uh, no, absolutely. That, that was such an early thing because it's it's partly who we are. It's also how we think we can keep you with with our skills. It's how we can keep you engaged and entertained for X amount of hours. We we can't do yeah. grim dark. You know, yeah. there's there's great grim dark pieces out there. That's not us. Yeah, I think it's also because I mean the because we want to make something. Uh, I mean, we want to make something emotional, but we're not going to make it emotional as in like oh we're going to make it sad. Because if we're going to make something that is you know very grim and sad, like that's a completely different type of emotions and like. Uh, we can't do that you know we can't do that justice and uh we would be bad at that but we do like make having fun we do fun like, is a good emotion fun is a good emotion uh and you know we want to do over the top things and yeah. for a game to be over the top um th- the world needs to be able to facilitate that we need to have a wor- world where we can do over the top because it's it's important for us that the 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 world uh like it feels cohesive 
uh, and that's where like yeah i mean we're gonna do something where we we have the possibility to do basically whatever we want but also uh you know have fun with it and yeah. that that just matches like that, that, that there's no disconnect between the game store like if the game store was super sad and you're like oh now you're supposed to cry here and we're like well but i just made eight dudes explode into goo <laughs> i don't really feel like crying and right the, even even the people in the world I, I i truly do believe that people in this world would still joke amongst themselves and they would still hustle and they would still you know try and look at the bright side and you know they would hopefully have a very colorful language which for us looking into the aquarium is fun uh that's one way also to cope with it like i can't imagine everyone there just walking around being sad all the time <laughs> you know they'll they'll see they'll seek whatever you know uh, hedonism or outlet they can find. Absolutely. And I, I, it's awesome. It's such a great twist on traditional cyberpunk uh, approaches. I mean, because you're right, cyberpunk is in some ways about hedonistic excesses and the use of cybernetics and drug, designer drugs and all the other things that started way back in, in the uh, 80s. Uh, and it, I, you've taken it to a really, really unique place. And, and with that in mind, do you think, do, do you hope or think that like cyberpunk and games is going to splinter off into sort of a new movement. I, I would like for that to happen because I love cyberpunk as well. I th uh, I think it will happen. I think I think that's what's been hard is that you know both for you know movies and games like cyberpunk is hard to do justice because it's a lot easier to make a forest than it is to make a fully realized cohesive uh, sci-fi world. It's always harder and and especially cyberpunk with the with the themes, you know, with the, you know, high tech and low life, it tends to be uh, quite often in the, you know, like uh, not the most, you know, sterile, clean environments, right? So it demands a lot of content just to yeah. make the, because it is such a, uh, it, it tends to be such a rich, you know, uh, a texture to the world. And I think that's just hard to pull off compared to other stuff. But I think we're at a point where, you know, tools, you know, like Unreal Engine, for example, and, you know, like the, you know, like how easy how easy it is for for people to get their hands on you know content you know like be it, be it the Unreal Marketplace or something. Yeah. So I think now there is a possibility for people to actually you know uh, craft uh, you know uh, both more unique and meaningful you know uh, cyberpunk uh, experiences without having to have an enormous team behind it. Yeah, and I mean um, hopefully with a few. Uh, you know, good pieces of entertainment. Um, there's also obviously a lot of stuff coming out in the movie world, which is fantastic. Um, hopefully that just increases the, not not only the interest, but the more people will get to be exposed to this kind of world. Because obviously Lord of the Rings uh, exposed a lot of people that weren't into fantasy to fantasy. And it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. And then a lot of people, you know, wanted to be wizards or whatnot. And this is a, a much more expensive version of fantasy, right? Uh, in, in that sense. So I think we can reach people, not, not only we Neon Giant, but we people can reach uh, a wider audience now with, with good cyberpunk. Um, and hopefully that will, you know, get the audience more thirsty, get more people to want to invest in creating more cyberpunk. And we will see more cyberpunk. Because um, in... Uh, you know, anime, for example, has been big into cyberpunk for a, for a long time because it's roughly the same amount of work to draw cyberpunk as anything else. Uh, it, it still takes time to draw trees. <laughs> That's a great point. I'm, I'm really excited to hear you guys say that uh, and, and to see where it goes. Uh, well, thinking, going, coming back to Neon Giant as a, as a team, uh, you know, what is your vision long-term for, for Neon Giant? We we definitely want to uh, you know stay a, a pretty small studio. Yeah, we have no intentions of becoming a AAA developer, right? Uh, but uh, we we want to stay small, and we want to uh, we want to work on on the type of games that uh, uh, that we love, you know, and, and with very well realized worlds and you know uh, solid action. Like we're not going to make a walking simulator, and we're not going to make a PvP shooter, right? We we want to craft worlds, yeah. uh, you know, interactive worlds, preferably with over-the-top action mechanics in them somewhere, uh, and uh, and stay stay small. You know, uh, I mean, we'll probably grow a bit. We will but, definitely grow. Yeah, but we we definitely want to be in that space, and uh, 
and also you know explore new things we don't want to make you know sequel after sequel after sequel necessarily yeah. uh, unless we find something where we want to do that but yeah. the, but the plan is you know to to stay creative and you know you know create new worlds and i, I think also uh, keep doing what we're doing which you know is is higher slow hire new skill sets and see where that takes us see what excites us uh, and not only me and tor but uh, us as a studio um because you know the hopefully we'll be around for a long time now um but i couldn't tell you you know what game we'll be making five years from now because i don't even know what the studio will be and we just just with the ascent as with the ascent we have to let the studio kind of take us where we want it to go in a very non-hippie way <laughs> that's great well uh having started you know a brand new studio having created a successful game in just a few years what advice would you give others who are thinking about doing the same thing do it uh the, the hardest thing of doing it is to just do it um the technology is ready uh the market is ready especially if you go pc only um the the uh, information and knowledge is readily available the software is even free now i i think you can get every piece of software you need it's free yeah. um the expensive part is time so depending on where you are in your life uh that comes with a different cost uh so especially for younger people just just do it and figure out the rest while you do it don't expect to have a full plan because we didn't yeah. Uh, you know, oh, of course, we, we wish we had a better one. Yeah, we, we thought did we had it. a plan, but turned out we didn't. Yeah. So. <laughs> and also, uh, I mean, not to underestimate the uh, the amount of work you know surrounding. You're supposed to be encouraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it, this is encouraging to not underestimate the amount of work you know around the you know uh, the business side and to actually get help doing that yeah. because like I, I, I'm just talking to friends. I know several people have have done this. And they're like, oh, wow, it's so much work. It's like, yes, <laughs> make someone else do it. It's focus on what you're good at. You know, if you're a concept artist, you should not be, you know, wrestling the tax system because you yeah. know, that is not, that's not your skill. Yeah, that, that's excellent advice. And I know it's tempting, especially for all of us who get into games because we're all problem solvers and we want to solve every problem. But reaching out to others who are experts is, is wonderful. And are there any resources that you've sort of discovered along the way that either you wish you had used or you would you could uh, suggest to others who may be thinking about the same thing? I think um, depending on where you are and where you are in life, uh, one thing I would definitely recommend is if there is an incubator available yeah. to you, use it. It's literally that. It's literally a place that helps uh, companies of all sorts uh, come into existence and help with the stuff that's outside of what you actually want to do. Definitely latch onto that because those are amazing. Sweden is very, very strong with that. Uh, but I know there's also plenty in the US. Uh, so if, if, if that's available, that's a preset package for you with all the help you need. Yeah. Yeah. We just called in every favor we could instead. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, yeah. Well, that's a great point too. I think that a lot of folks overlook the importance of those, um, of, of being willing to, to ask others for help, to to rely on connections that you may have with insider outside of the industry, just to 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 fill in the gaps when you need it, so that you can focus on what's most important. Yeah, sure. So, so just as sort of a final question, what gets you both most excited about the next few years in games? Wow, that was the hardest one yet. I really look forward to seeing more in the uh, mid-tier of gaming. Uh, you know, AAA is always going to be awesome. It's going to stay awesome. It's going to stay full price. Um, the low end, I'm, I'm talking price now, uh, will be more for quirky ideas, and they can be amazing. Uh, but the really interesting space for me is the mid-priced games because they, they usually offer a, a pretty significant experience, but they still dare to go outside of the box a bit. And just these last five or maybe in 10 years, I think we've seen a lot of really interesting stuff happening there. And that, that's not just to toot the ascent horn, but I think that's a really interesting place now because you also see a lot of smaller developers being able to deliver in that arena. So I think that's a really interesting place now with the new platforms and, and markets and everything. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, it's a mix of uh, 
you know, small enough to be able to do, you know, a little bit more quirky and unique concepts, but with, you know, modern tools and the way it is today, it's still going to be, you know, you know, production values, you know, it's, it's going to be a audiovisual experience as well. And I think that's also for me is uh, both terrifying and uh, exciting uh, as a game developer myself. And it's just the, the rapid, uh, rapid advance of tools and, you know, like all kinds of stuff, you know, deep learning and, and so on. It's just, I have no idea of what kind of experiences that will, you know, be created in the next coming years because there's so many, there's just so many cool concepts, you know, uh, uh, that will allow people to create things that it's just, I have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to count generations in, in game developers. I, I'd argue you're probably in the generation before us and there's probably a generation after us. But like when me and Tor, we if, if we ever feel a bit bitter, it's often like, well, when we went to school, if we had the toys they had, like we didn't have an engine and I, like your version is probably even worse. But like we didn't have a readily available game engine. We didn't have this. We didn't have guides for everything on YouTube. If you were lucky, you found a written guide that was wrong. YouTube didn't exist. Okay, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> uh, but so, so you know, we get envious of of the things you can start learning as a fourteen year old now. Oh, what to be young again? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you know, let's 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 wait for them to to get into the biz for real, or maybe they are now. They they probably are, and and. Uh, that's when we'll probably see like a paradigm shift of what kind of games uh, we're making. That's that is probably what's happening now. That's that's probably them. They probably caught up. That's what happened. There we go. <laughs> Crap. I love it. That's a that is such a wonderful statement to end on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Final word. Crap. <laughs> very real. Uh, thank you both very much for for being on the show, for sharing your perspectives, for talking about uh, how you built this amazing game, and congratulations to you both. Thank you so much. This Thanks. was fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is excited to share that the 2022 DICE Summit and DICE Awards will be returning in person to the gorgeous Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino and Delano Hotel in Las Vegas on February 22nd to 24th, 2022. We'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the DICE Awards and bringing together industry leaders to share their ideas about the many facets of the interactive entertainment industry. Stay tuned to www.interactive.org and our Twitter at official underscore AIAS for more details coming soon, including special anniversary rates. We can't wait to see you again. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.